Hi, welcome to the podcast. I am Joe Posnanski, national columnist for NBC Sports. And with me, as always, Michael Shore, executive producer of Parks and Recreation in Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Michael, another podcast. I know. It's very exciting. You know, someone pointed out to me on Twitter that at the end of every podcast, I thank you for having me, but I'm the only guest that you have. <laughs> so... But I don't care. I'm still going to – it's not going to stop me from thanking you for having me. Right. I really should be thanking you for allowing me to – I don't know what. I think that – I think that's a a given that, like, uh, you know, I think what we should – I think just now out of tradition alone, I'm just going to say thank you for having me at the beginning and end of every one of them. (laughs) And I don't care if I'm the only guest you have. It doesn't matter. I'm still grateful that you allowed me to talk to you for 80 minutes yeah well the, the best part is the, the podcast in general i mean we know about the general low quality of these of these podcasts technically and and uh, and content wise yeah. but i would say the worst part of the podcast are the ends i never know how to end these things so i just <laughs> basically i'm like oh, all right we're out of time i guess sort of okay so here's though here's the thing then people should write in and suggest a sign off for you Ooh, that would... i like that yeah, if anyone's listening to this, and no one is, but if anyone is, you should write in, write to, or make a comment, or I don't know how you work, I don't know the internet, but someone should suggest to Joe an official podcast sign-off, where at the end it's like, so long, and ride him cowboy, or whatever, and then that that will become the official way that you end it, and then we won't have to worry about that anymore. I like that, I like that. I, I am willing to accept an official sign-off for this thing. Yeah. All right, we're already off to a terrible start as we try to tidy up the podcast. Um, we're about to get started. We're going to have our faux argument and uh, a pretty cool draft, kind of a different draft this week. Um, we're going to get right to it. We don't, we're, not going to, we're not going to pause to, to talk about all these other things, but it is impossible for me to, to let this thing go any further without at least mentioning that at this very moment, so I'm talking about 12.09 p.m. on Wednesday, uh, June, whatever it is, the Kansas City Royals are in first place. I, yes. I, Congratulations. Yes. It just has to be said. It has yeah. to be said. Now, it's the first time at the 70-game mark since 1980. Is that correct? No, no. <laughs> that's that's That would be bad. I think it's the first time at this point or later in the season since 2003. They had the, they had they were, the, are you sure? I'm not 100% sure. Well, they were, it's, it's possible. They had a stretch of time where they were not in first place in 2003, but they were in first place later. Okay, so maybe at this exact moment, oh, yeah. I heard that stat. Maybe it just that's a technicality, but at this exact moment, they haven't it's since 1980 or something. No, that but makes it, sense. That, yeah. that that very well probably is true. So but it's also a totally pointless stat if they were in first place later than this in a different year. <laughs> that's why I was a little baffled by that stat, but yeah. it's it's still a good one. Anyway, they're in first place. By the time people listen to this, they might not be. So I'm going to take the moment and celebrate that. For, for right now. They've won nine in a row. They just won the Tigers last night, right? Pounded the Tigers. Pounded yeah. uh, last year's Cy Young winner, Max Scherzer. Um, they're playing really well. I, you know, I, I just read a very sensible piece about how lucky they've been and how there's no way it's going to last, and uh, it probably won't. But it's happening now, and, and, uh, and it's happening with pretty cool players, young players, Pretty exciting players. Uh, Giordano of Ventura pitched yesterday. He's the guy who throws 103 miles an hour. It's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. If any if any town in the country deserves it, it's Kansas City. So so if if it lasts, that'd be great. 
Royals in first, Rays in dead last. Dead Rays, last. Rays with the worst record in the American League. <laughs> what is going on? I don't I don't have any idea. I really don't. It's it's bizarre. The Yankees just keep every day I look at the Yankees, I look at that lineup and go, why isn't that team like on pace to lose a thousand games this year? You know why. You know exactly why. <laughs> I've explained it to you so many times. You, you do remind me on an almost daily basis. Exactly. Ichiro is hitting like 330 this year. I mean, it's he's he's 50 years old. It doesn't make any sense. It happens all the time. I mean, they have one good pitcher and and zero good hitters. And they're, you know, and they're, by the way, the run differential is still like deeply negative. And deeply. yet they're, they're like in second place and they're going to win the wild card. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we're not going to discuss. Too, too depressing. Royals in first place. We're leaving it at that. All right. Uh, and we're going on to our faux argument, which uh, today is, you know, very timely. Our faux argument is, uh, has soccer arrived in America, based on the thrilling World Cup uh, uh, game against Ghana and the, the huge reaction? Has soccer arrived? And I think as a corollary to that question is, why are so many people, like, determined for it never to arrive in America. Yeah. Why are people so angry at even the suggestion that it might arrive in America? All right. The five minute timer has started. Just you, so be- you, know. you begin. Okay. I think uh, this was never going to happen overnight and it, it hasn't happened overnight. It was, you know, I would say that it really started in the, in the 94 world cup in America. Um, and it's, you know, it's, it's 20 years from then till now. And I think it's just sort of really in a real way, beginning to take off in America. And, I don't the the answer to why people are determined that it shouldn't is it completely eludes me. I think there's something there's some kind of very kind of lunk-headed macho American nonsense attitude of like that's a, not a sport for us. Like that's a that's a wimpy European sport that still there's still enough kind of boring old fuddy-duddy kind of old school sports writers who perpetrate that narrative. But they're dying off, and they're and they're getting weaker. Their arguments are getting weaker because the sport becomes more and more popular every year. Um, and so I th- I think I don't know I don't know what you would say would make it officially have arrived in America. But I was thinking about the Spurs, and you know on the Spurs a championship team, there's Tiago Splitter who's a Brazilian, sure. and there's Tony Parker and Boris Diaw from uh, France, and you know and they've got Ginobili, and they, this is a you know who's Argentine? They've got there. There's a large number of foreign-born players now uh, on every team in the NBA. You kind of can't win if you don't have some European players in the on your team. And I think that things like that are also helping the interest in soccer. And I, you know, NBC Sports is now making it a lot easier to watch the the Premiership and the and the Champions League and all those sorts of things. So. It's not going backwards. I don't think people in America are going to get less interested in soccer. And I and I, I believe that this World Cup, anecdotally, I would say more people are interested. It is my experience. You know, it's funny because in 1994, I remember I was working for the, for the Cincinnati Post at the time, the afternoon paper in Cincinnati, and I went out on July 4th to do something on – Soccer, it was obviously built around the World Cup. I wasn't going to the World Cup, so I was doing something else. And I went to, they were having a youth tournament in Cincinnati at the time. And I went and they had all these fields. They had about 30 fields. And they had 10 quadrillion kids out there on the field. <laughs> I, I, 
Uh, approximately. I mean, I'm not. Yeah. It was an approximate number. Twin. It was. It was unbelievable, and they were from all over the country. It was, you know, probably one of fifty youth tournaments happening in America at that weekend or whatever. But it was. It was one of the one of the big ones, and there were all of these kids. And I thought, you know, people who think soccer hasn't arrived. It all depends on what you're saying, because as a youth sport, soccer arrived 20 years ago. I mean, it passed baseball yeah. forever ago, forever yeah. ago. And kids have been playing soccer forever. Always the question was, well, when is that going to, or if, will it translate to people watching soccer? And I think that part of the reason that it has taken as long as it has is, Basically, they have they have not had great access to the best soccer in the world. I mean, people yeah. in general want to watch the best. That's why the NBA is huge around the world. Nobody cares about baseball around the world. Nobody cares about well, you know, in Japan they care about their own baseball, and in Asia and in, in the in Latin America. But nobody cares about American football around the world. But everybody cares about soccer, and they care about the very best leagues, the very best teams, and they their countries have it in Germany and Italy and. England and and so on and we there just wasn't that high level of soccer the, the MLS is getting better and better now and you're beginning to see huge rivalries build up in the MLS especially in the northwest and and it's growing but I think that's really been the reason I think people have been keep saying oh nobody yeah people, the kids play it but then they don't watch it they don't watch it because they haven't had access to the Premier League they haven't had access to the Champions League and when World Cup came around they didn't really get excited about it until 94 and then 98 and then once the team started getting pretty good people really did get excited about it and now it's huge i think it's i think it's more than arrived i don't think anything could be quite as unifying right now including the super bowl as world cup is because everybody cares and everybody's rooting for the same team and i i it's i think it's absolutely enormous i think there's another thing too which is that in america it's actually not unique to America. It, it, you know, popularity is often just follows stars, right? And sure. The best thing that could happen in this World Cup is that that the really big international stars, Messi and and Neymar and you know whoever, Iniesta, anyone, uh, Ronaldo, the, if those players have huge World Cups and really like do extraordinary things, in addition to the U.S. making a decent run, which so far so good in that regard. That will be the thing that really kind of maybe like gives it another jolt is if uh, is if American kids can start really identifying with foreign stars who play on foreign teams right. and really getting invested in like whoever in Real Madrid or in, you know, uh, in Liverpool or in what. And if they start if, if American kids start choosing foreign clubs and also just foreign nations to root for and then are actively following them, which is now easier than it's ever been, I think that would make a big difference going forward. I, I think so, too. I think that's why the NBA is so big uh, around timer, the world. The timer just went off. Oh, that's we, it! We each said, like, one thing. <laughs> that's how bad we are at clock management. <laughs> okay, well, we didn't get anything done in that, in that the, conversation we, at all. Yeah, we are the Andy Reeds of <laughs> podcasting. We have no clock management at all. I knew the clock was running out and I still didn't call timeout. Yeah, no, that was, that was terrible. All right. Well, good. Well, I'm sure people learned a lot from that. So <laughs> we, we now, we now move on to our draft. This is good yeah. though. I mean, I like the fact that we're, we're moving that the clock, is, the, the time is moving. Yeah. 
We're having a cool draft this week. I really like it. We've been doing uh, all kinds of crazy out there drafts, and, and, and those are a blast. But cool draft this week. We're actually drafting, in a serious way, the purest hitters. Uh, that's it. The purest hitters. I was going to say pure, something. Pure, hitters. pure yeah. hitters. That's it. We are drafting pure hitters. And we did not, as always, discuss what that means or how we refer to it or what kind of boundaries we're placing on that. We're just drafting pure baseball hitters. And we're doing it, we should say, um, in honor of Tony Gwynn, who uh, who passed away this week and who is just, a, in addition to being as pure a hitter as there is, just a, a wonderful, wonderful guy. And, and uh, there have been many, many uh, wonderful things written about him. I, I took my shot as well. Um, but... Sad, very, very sad, Tony Gwynn dying this week. Incredibly sad, and, um, you know, the phrase pure hitter is 100% meaningless. Yes. Like many like many great baseball terms, it means absolutely nothing, and it's used all the time. You right. constantly hear people say, that guy's a pure hitter. That doesn't mean anything. <laughs> so well, let's acknowledge the fact that it's an utterly meaningless term. However, I would also add, whatever it means it applies to Tony Gwynn, yes. right? That's sort of the reason for this is like, it doesn't mean anything, but it also makes total sense when you think of it in conjunction with Tony Gwynn. That's, <laughs> why, we're, that's why we decided to make it pure hitters. Pure hitters. I do, by the way, I, I do want to point out that the original idea was to just draft hitters, and then it just went up another notch when we decided to make it pure hitters. Right. Like, even though we added nothing whatsoever, we're still drafting hitters, but yes. but pure hitters. All right, I, I think I have the first pick All right. uh, this week, and... Uh, um, you know, I should take Tony Gwynn, but I but I'm actually going to take Ted Williams um, because I don't think you really should have a draft like this and not take Ted Williams as yeah. the as the purest hitter ever. And of course, he was he was Tony Gwynn's uh, hero as well. So so I think that 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 does still speaks to Tony Gwynn. Not a lot really necessary to say about Tony Gwynn about Ted Williams rather the last 400 hitter. Um, you know, just just uh, 344 lifetime batting average, incredible, incredible on so many different levels. I did pull out a couple of different things uh, that I think are pretty cool about him. Uh, and really, it gets to one of my favorite seasons of his. Uh, really one of my favorite seasons of all time. Uh, Ted Williams at age 38 hit 388, um, which is extraordinary, absolutely extraordinary. And he was, I think, five or six hits. I can't remember which number it is, maybe five hits, away from 400. At an age where he couldn't run, he couldn't move, he 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 had, he got no infield hits, nothing. He still hit 388. And here's my favorite part about that: in September of that year, uh, Ted Williams got hurt, and he missed about two and a half weeks in the middle of the, uh, at the start of the month. So I think he got hurt September 1st. He didn't come back until September September 17th, and he was still in terrible shape. And he couldn't hit, and he couldn't play. They they basically had to pinch hit him uh, for the next three or four games. He was not in good shape to play. However, after coming back from the injury and playing basically in in extreme pain, he hit six seventy six sixty seven the last two weeks of the season. <laughs> Twelve for eighteen the last six the last uh, two weeks of the season to get that batting average up to three eighty eight. Basically. One leg, one eye. He's like the he's like the knight from from uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Like you cut off arms and legs, and he's still fighting. Um, yeah, just the best pure hitter there ever was. And and uh, 
knew it. He had said wonderful things about hitting, talked about hitting at, at length. Uh, his book, The Science of Hitting, is is still the the classic. Joey Votto walks around with it, which I think is pretty awesome. Um, the best pure hitter of all time, Ted Williams. Yeah, he's the number one pick in this meaningless draft uh, <laughs> of pure hitters. And the, only, the, the stat that I was going to pick, if somehow you left him on the board, was he, his rookie year, he's 20 years old. His OPS was 1,045. His final year at age 41, his OPS was 1,096. So he bookended his 21-year career, which had five years basically missing for military service in his absolute prime. He, at 20 years old, he had 1,000 OPS. At 41 years old, he had 1,000 OPS. It didn't matter how old he was, where he was, what he was doing. He, that was, he was just such a monster. It's it's incredible, and those years that he missed for the wars, you know, because he he's one of the few that missed missed for both World War II and for Korea. Those years were were super prime years. But in addition to that, and and people adding the numbers and everything else, think about how much better his career totals would be. Like even as a rate stat, like he yep. had a three forty four lifetime batting average, but he had five years there where he probably would have hit three seventy. You know, during those through those years, it's. It really is incredible, and he probably would have hit 400 again, I think. Um, you know, I thought a lot about this hitting 400 bit, and, uh, and you know, especially with Tony Gwynn being the, the last one to come close to it. And it, it's, it's such a mind-boggling achievement. But I think Ted Williams, when he, when he did it, it was, first of all, it was not that big a deal. I mean, it was a big deal, but it had been done fairly recently. Yeah. But you almost got the sense from him, you know, he played the last game and, and all of that, that everybody should hit 400. You know what I mean? He just got the sense that this was not out of the ordinary for him. So well, he, he also knew what, what a lot of people forget. And, uh, as like, a is a main, um, sort of necessity to hit 400, which is you have to walk all the time. Yes. Because yes. essentially you have to reduce the number of plate appearances or at bats by, you know, 150 in order to have a chance because over 700 at bats, if you never walk, you're never going to hit 400. It's just impossible. So, you know, he would walk 150 times a year, uh, and that is what actually gave him the chance. That's why what Gwynn did was so amazing is because Gwynn didn't walk nearly as much, right. and he still was hitting 394 or whatever it was when the strike happened in, in 1994, uh, or 390, whatever it was. So, like, that, you know, Ted Williams knew that, I mean, that was a key part of having a batting average as high as he did was you just have to walk all the time to reduce the, you know, the total number of plate appearances and at-bats. And never swing at a bad pitch. Yeah, Never exactly. Swing yeah. A bad pitch. You, you have to act, you have to limit your chances of getting hits to balls that you could actually put into play. So, yeah. um, all right, it's a great choice. It's the correct choice. You're, you've already won this draft. But uh, <laughs> with my first pick, I'm gonna cha- um, I'm gonna take Hank Aaron um, for the simple reason that he just hit the most of anybody. Right? Like, if, I don't know what pure hitter again. It's a meaningless term, but he hit the most. He had 6,856 total bases in his career, which is 700 in front of the next highest person in history, who's Stan Musial, that 700 total bases is two amazing seasons. He was two amazing seasons of total bases in front of this second-place guy. And it's really fun to just... I mean, this is the this is my favorite draft we've done so far because it gave me an excuse to just go to baseball reference for, like, three hours. And, it, you know, you just pick out any year from... You know, Hank Aaron started when he was 20, retired when he was 42. And at the end of his career, he had a couple, you know, run-down years... It wasn't so great, but you just find these little nuggets within his career. Like, you know, he hit 40 home runs when he was 39. 
And he also hit, he had 44 home runs when he was 23. Yeah. And he had 34 doubles when he was 22. And he had 33 doubles when he was 34. And he had 132 RBIs when he was 23. He had 118 RBIs when he was 37. He just hit and hit and hit and hit every day, every year. He had, you know, that when he was 39, he had a kind of a crazy year. He played in 120 games and hit 40 home runs at age 39. And he had 1,000 OPS and a 177 OPS plus at age 39 in 1973 playing for Atlanta in a, in a crummy ballpark. Like, it didn't, he just is one of those guys that you just imagine any era, put him anywhere on any team in any era, it doesn't matter. He would have done the same exact thing, which is just hit every single day. So I'm taking him just, just for pure, like, longevity and kind of, like awe-inspiring cumulative totals. I'm taking Hank Aaron. It's a, it's a great, great choice. You know, he the thing about him is that he never hit 50 home runs in a season. That's right. that's fairly well known. And you almost got the sense that that, as much as anything else, defined him. It's almost like he was he would go out every single year and do exactly the same thing, and that just didn't include hitting 50 home runs. He didn't have 50 home runs in him. He was, he had 44 home runs in him. That's what he had. And he did that every single year for 20 plus years. It's insane. Yeah. And he would walk about 68 times a year. He would strike out about 80 times a year. You know, like it just, it's just remarkable. If you look at the really amazing thing is his OPS plus, which is of course adjusted for time period and ballpark and everything else it's just incredibly consistent. It's just like 151, 166, 152, 156, 163, 170, 153, 161. It's just he did this same thing every year. And there are a couple outlying years, but it, he was just a machine. He was a total machine. He was a pure hitter, I would say. I would call him pure. I, I think that's a, pure a hitter? Yeah. very, very pure hitter. All right, <laughs> that's an excellent choice at, at, at uh, with your first pick. It's not Ted Williams, but it's an excellent choice. Yeah. Um, I am going to go I, – I have to say that my thought process on this is, other than Ted Williams, who to me is like a separate category, I decided I was only going to pick players that I have seen in my lifetime. Interesting. Um, and I'm a little older than you, so I've, I've seen some players that you probably haven't seen. Um, and, I mean, even if I saw him once, it counts. I mean, like yeah. like Roberto Clemente, seeing him on TV, it counts. So, sure. Um, so I'm going to actually pick – I mean, I've, so, I've just sort of given that in mind. So I've already cut out – all the Ty Cobbs of the world—they're completely out of my out of my realm. Um, so, with that in mind, uh, my second pick is going to be Tony Gwynn. I think I think uh, in honor of him, and uh, but also really a, a man out of time. You know, I was looking up his career batting average, um, and and what the number is is not as important. Is that he's right between Nap Lajoie and Jesse Burkett? That's that's where he is. <laughs> And that to me is who he was. I mean, he was this guy who was like out of the out of the forties and thirties and twenties and even even into the even into dead ball playing in nineteen ninety three. You know, I mean it's just it's it's absolutely incredible. He attacked teams the same way that guys attacked teams back when the home run wasn't even a threat, you know, back when, you know, it wasn't that he would hit balls between fielders, over fielders, under fielders. He never struck out, you know, the, the most amazing stat about him, the single most amazing stat is that he faced Greg Maddox 107 times. He never struck out. 
God. Greg Maddox faced him a hundred and seven times. He hit four fifteen against Maddox, which in and of itself is amazing. But he never struck out. Not even one time did he strike out against Greg Maddox. That's the guy was he was incredible. And he did it differently than than I think most players of his time. And he was you know very early on the whole video thing. He would study himself. He he kept detailed notebooks of of pitchers and and little things to look for and he had this ability to just kind of play with his mind worrying at a, a very you know very very quickly and that wasn't really true of most great hitters i mean most great hitters instinctive went to the plate looked for the ball you know looked for the fastball just to the curve that's that's pretty much how most of the great ones have done it but he wasn't like that he was always looking for the tiniest little edge just any kind of little slight delivery change by a pitcher, um, he could. He was looking to see, okay, is he tipping a curveball at this point? And he had the ability to to take that knowledge and actually use it as a hitter. Very, very unique, amazing, amazing hitter, pure hitter. Yeah, it it, it was also so just fun to watch him hit. He just yeah. looked like a. He just looked like he would walk up and sort of waggle the bat around a little bit, and you just it just looked like. You didn't. You couldn't get him out. It just looked like you could. There was no way to get him out, and then you were usually right. <laughs> um, it's a great choice. It's a, a, a appropriate choice given the sad news of this week. And in a weird way, in order to honor that choice, I'm going to take Wade Boggs as number two because Boggs and Gwynn came up the same year. Yes, uh, their '83 tops rookie cards were my most prized possession, and they were they were they were sort of they were different guys. They were very different guys, but they were sort of similar hitters. They were both left-handed. They both, uh, you know, had that kind of, uh, deliberate approach to things. Um, and they, they both had incredible back control. Boggs never swung at a first pitch ever, uh, which was very, uh, a very good lesson for like a young kid in little league to watch him. Like he just always took pitches. The funniest thing about Boggs is that he was absolutely just killed by the Boston media when he came up for, for for being like selfish or like taking too many walks and not hitting in the clutch. And it didn't matter. Bob Ryan wrote a famous piece about him where he said he, he there's nothing that the, the, to suggest that he's the guy you want up with the, with the game on the line or something. Meanwhile, he was hitting like 470 and, you know, in any kind of clutch situations, but it was cause he walked and like now, you know, he, at the time, people didn't care. There was no sabermetrics. You know, Bill James was was not a widely read guy. And, you, you know, Boggs was putting up on-base percentages in the mid-400s every year, or sometimes high-400s. He was putting up, like, Barry Bonds level or, you know, a Frank Thomas level on-base percentages. He would be so He would be so much more revered as a player if he had come up in the last five or ten years in, as opposed to 1982. Um and it was a, it was a, he was the guy I modeled I like wanted to be as a hitter. He just looked like he was so patient. He was so it didn't matter if you got a strike on him. He was it didn't phase him at all. He was incredibly calm. He he was the best offensive probably the best offensive player in baseball from for six or seven years from like eighty three to eighty nine. And then there's all the famous stats like there was a year allegedly that he only popped up to the infield once in the entire season. I think he was 85. He allegedly popped up to the infield once in the entire year. Right. He was just a, I mean, again, a pure hitter. He was just a pure hitter. Pure hitter. You know, I, there was another stat about him with two strikes. I can't remember the exact numbers. But one year he hit some insane, you know, everybody 
with two strikes hits 210, right? I yeah. mean, even the best hitters on earth with two strikes on them hit 210. Uh, and he hit something like 330 or 320 with two strikes. It was, it was something insane. Um, yeah, yeah that, there was a lot of fun to, to find stats like that about him because you would also say, like, you know, he, he swings at the first pitch, you know, in 8% of his at-bats, but when he does, he hits 437, you know? It was like every single stat about him is crazy. Yeah, he was he was insane, and he was it was really cool to watch him and Gwyn because they were so different. I mean, Boggs walked all the time, and Gwyn didn't. And right. Boggs had had Fenway, which he played like a like yo yo ma. I mean, it was insane how many balls he just banged off the left field wall, or he would just or he would just try to just you know rip down that uh, right field line. That one year, I guess, was eighty seven where he hit with some power. Right, he yeah. had some home runs, and then said, ah, "I've done that. I don't need to do that anymore." And um, <laughs> it just, just amazing. And unlike Gwyn, he was so weird, right? I mean, he was just yeah. like he's like insane, just just insane with all of the all of the various superstitions he did. The you know putting putting high into the into the plate, you know, like the Jewish the Jewish symbol for, for life into, he would carve that into the dirt and he ate chicken every meal and had the whole weird Margot Adams thing. Uh, yeah. The guy was, the guy was fun. He was, he was yeah. really fun. Yeah. He's a weirdo in the best possible way. <laughs> Supposedly he's an all time beer drinker, right? Isn't that, isn't that like the legend? Yeah. Well, there's a famous story that he drank, that someone dared him, I think to drink 60 beers on a cross country flight. And he allegedly <laughs> drank 60 beers on one five or six hour flight from Boston to, to, you know, Anaheim or whatever. I mean, that seems impossible, but it seems to have, that story has legs. Like you hear that story all the time. So I, I think there must be some truth to it. And then you ripped three hits the next day, didn't he? I mean, that's the yeah, thing. Sure. Yeah. Three for four with a double. Yeah. That's my guess. Great choice. He's, he's, a, he's, he is sort of the essence of the pure hitter. Uh, yeah. I'm going to go with a guy who is not the essence of the pure hitter. In fact, a guy who, if you said hitter, Everybody would kind of nod, but if you said pure hitter, they would say, I don't think so. Um, Barry Bonds is, is going to be my next choice. I, I don't, you know, his amazing career from beginning to end, you know, from beginning when he was sort of this, this uh, mercurial pain in the neck who came up out of college and, and immediately insisted on becoming a star to the last few years when he was breaking all the records and driving everybody insane and, and all the steroid talk was going on. Throughout that entire career, I think there was something that always was there underrating Barry Bonds. There was like something that always wanted people. It's like people did not want Barry Bonds to be good. And so when he was winning MVP awards, which you can't really be underrated to, to when you're winning MVP awards, people were still saying, yeah, he's a great player, but he's not Ken Griffey. And he's not like some of these other people. Um, then in the late nineties, when, when those guys started hitting the crazy home runs, everybody was like, going, eh, you know, Sosa is past Barry Bonds and McGuire is past Barry Bonds and these other guys who have hitting all the home runs. And then of course he gets all mad and bulks up and he starts hitting the home runs and everybody's like, yeah, it doesn't mean anything. It's steroids. It's like, that's been, <laughs> that's been his whole career. And yeah. I think that's that's fine and good. You know, Barry Bonds never asked for people to like him. He certainly did not go out of his way to get people to like him. But that said, it's like everybody missed the fact that this guy, from beginning, really, you know, from his second or third year all the way through the end of his career, was 
an absolutely extraordinary hitter. I mean, extraordinary on the on the highest level you can possibly be. You take away the last five years of his career, take away all of those home runs and the 370 batting average and all of that. You're talking about one of the 10 best hitters in baseball history without any of that. I mean, yeah. that's, that's how good this guy was. And then, of course, you add all that stuff in there, and it, you, can't, you can't rate him anywhere below Ted Williams. I mean, it's like he's there with Ted Williams and Babe Ruth if you add all those numbers in there. I, that's, the guy was just absolutely he – was, he was really a joy to watch, too. He was a joyful player to watch, even though he was sort of – not sort of. He was very serious and, and not particularly – uh, friendly and and all of these other things, he did everything on the field. He just did absolutely everything. He could run and he could throw and he could field and 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 as a hitter, he was an absolute. He was a scientist. He never swung at a bad pitch. It was like Ted Williams never swung at a bad pitch. Could go anywhere with the ball. Uh, he was he was he was really a magical hitter. And it's a shame. We could talk about the Hall of Fame. You could talk about all these other things. It's a shame that people didn't enjoy it for themselves. I mean, some San Francisco fans did and Pittsburgh fans for a while did. But everybody else kind of missed an amazing show because they were so determined to to put him down, I think. Yeah, it, it is really sad. Everything about Barry Bonds is sad. <laughs> like his, his name just evokes extreme sadness. And for so many different complicated reasons that we need not go into. But, you know, I always go back to his last year in Pittsburgh and his first year in San Francisco before any of the HGH talk and any of that nonsense. Those two years, he his OPS plus was over 200, which means he was... He was twice as good as the average baseball player. Right. And the average baseball player is really good at baseball. And Ted Williams is the right cop. Like, if you look at his numbers, they're exactly, they're right in that Ted Williams wheelhouse. He walked 127 times in his last year in Pittsburgh, 126 is his first year in San Francisco. His first year in San Francisco, he had 46 home runs, drove in 123. He had 39 stolen bases one year, 29 the next. He was a monster. He was an absolute monster. He And... You're right. He was like he was the best player in baseball before any of this nonsense started, which is again why it's so sad and yeah. and uh, why the whole why the like the saga the the endless saga of Barry Bonds is is such a miserable awful way to end what would what was already one of the greatest careers that anyone had ever had and um you know it's just a huge bummer. <laughs> it, it is a huge bummer. It is and. And the funny thing is, when you look at those last few years of his career when he was putting up cartoonish numbers that nobody in baseball history has ever come close to touching, really. I mean, even maybe Ruth in, in 1921 or something, but essentially numbers that nobody else could match. Um, people want to just completely discount that because of steroids. Completely. Like, if it hadn't been for steroids, he wouldn't have hit what 12 home runs he would have hit 248 i mean the guy the guy the numbers he put up um from a batting average perspective from a walks perspective even discounting the 100 plus times that they would intentionally walk him in a year um are they're they're off the charts he he had he had reached a level of hitting in those last years that strength aside um steroids aside any of that aside 
he'd like had got it was like he was wearing a white robe and he was at the top of the mountain you know i mean he he had achieved like like inner peace as a hitter you couldn't <laughs> you could not throw him a strike that he would not hit very very hard i mean he had he had reached that level and would he have reached that level with, without steroids? Maybe he wouldn't have been healthy enough to have been on the field. Maybe he wouldn't have been strong enough to to maintain. I don't know. But that doesn't change the fact that he did reach this transcendent level of hitting. Yeah. It's a great choice. He's a pure hitter. I think that's one thing we can all agree on is he's a pure hitter. <laughs> he um, would probably not be considered a pure hitter by many. <laughs> I kind of uh, stuck to your same uh, thing and, and kept my – mostly to players that I've that I've actually seen in my life. Sure. And I have a weird choice at number three, which is a, the complete opposite of all five of the people we've chosen so far. <laughs> That's Vlad Guerrero. Love him. Love Vlad Guerrero. Love watching him play. One of my favorite, like, players in baseball history. He swung at everything. <laughs> he swung at every pitch you threw him. He swung at the first pitch. He swung at the second pitch. He just kept swinging until he hit the ball or he struck out. And more often than not, he hit the ball. He had no business putting up the kind of numbers that he put up because he swung at everything, inside, outside, pitches over his head, balls that bounced on the ground before they got to the plate, curveballs, sliders, change-ups, fastballs, cutters, four-seamers. didn't matter. He didn't care. He literally didn't care. He, he didn't wear batting gloves. And it was like the, the, the impression you got was that he just, when it was his turn to hit, he was so excited he forgot to put them on. He just grabbed his bat and ran to the plate and just whatever you threw him, it didn't matter. And yet, despite taking the absolute craziest approach, the approach that all people are taught not to take in hitting, he hit everything. He had he had four he you know, he was done at thirty-five or thirty-six. But in that time, in fifteen seasons or sixteen seasons, he had four hundred and fifty home runs and he had a nine thirty career OPS and he just he have you know he would routinely have 350 360 total bases in a year and i don't i just don't understand it i don't understand how anyone can have that approach and be as not just a great power hitter he wasn't just dave kingman or something he was a great hitter he had 200 hits in a season like three or four times you know he hit doubles he hit home runs he he, he did everything and i i it was just the exuberance with which he hit with like loved hitting to me, that's like the essence of a pure hitter, even though, again, pure hitter is a meaningless phrase. <laughs> love him. Love him. He was on my list as well. He's, he, he, I think the most amazing statistic that, that I think will be, will be spoken during this entire conversation, more amazing than the, the ridiculous Tony Gwynn never striking out against Greg Maddox, is the fact that, that at no point in Vladimir Guerrero's career did he strike? He did not strike out a hundred times a single time yeah. in his entire career, and that, of course, is like, well, you know, that's that shouldn't mean anything. I mean, Tony Gwynn struck out fifteen times in a season. The way that Guerrero swung, the way he played, the pitches he would swing at, the fact that he never struck out a hundred times is mind-boggling. It's impossible. Yeah. It's yeah. impossible. The guy never learned what a strike is, and he didn't care. He just did not care. <laughs> yeah, it was irrelevant. It was completely <laughs> irrelevant. And, and, you know, the guys, you know, usually the, the situation with a guy like that who kind of swings at everything, swings at first pitches, swings at bad pitches, those guys are usually can, – can be really good through, like, their through their tw- year 27 season or 28. And then as their wrists start to slow down and their reflexes start to slow down, they usually drop off considerably. But, like – 
This guy was still hitting, you know, all the way up until his career ended when he was 36. The guy was still hitting. You know, it's just that's what's so nuts about him is that he shouldn't have been able, given his approach, he should not have been able to put up an 886 OPS when he was 33. And, you know, and he did. He just he just did uh, because he was so good and because he started from such a, you know, such a place of pure talent. It was pure talent and pure joy. I mean, that was the thing that was so he was he was the most fun guy to watch hit by far. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a career 321 lifetime batting average for that guy swinging at those pitches and all of that. Just it was like magic. I mean, that really was truly like a magic trick. I mean, it's sort of like, okay, what if I take this guy and have him swing at every pitch? What do you think is the best average he could put up? And he would double that. I mean, it was, it it was insane (laughs) how good he was. And, and it leads into my fourth pick, which is Roberto Clemente, because it was very, very similar in, in the way they they played uh, and the way they swung the bat. I only saw Clemente once, and it was on television, but he was he was my father's, one of my father's favorite players. He's everybody's father's favorite player, right? Because mm-hmm. of the way he played and, and the arm and, and, and all of that. But that was Clemente, too. Clemente, like, it, it didn't matter what crazy pitch you threw him. He was going to swing at it, and he was going to hit it. I mean, he, he was absolutely a bad ball hitter, and he, he sprayed balls everywhere. It always amazes me to look at his numbers because he played in the 60s when pitching was thoroughly dominant, and a 300 batting average was very, very difficult to, to get. I mean, there was one year where Carl Yastrzemski in 68, I guess, was the only one to even hit 300. I mean, yeah. it, was, it, it meant something. And, of course, that was the only statistic that anybody cared about back then was batting average. And you look at his numbers year after year after year, and the batting average he would put up, again, playing at this style, you know, there's no question that Guerrero was like almost an homage to, to, to Clemente because of the way he played. He would swing at every pitch over his head in the dirt, didn't matter, find ways to put bats on the ball, find ways to get, uh, to get doubles and triples. I just, I think that those two in some ways are, are a package for me. I mean, they're, they're very different, obviously, in, in the, the times they played and what they represented. But that element of surprise that they would always have because of the way they would swing at any pitch, um, the pure hitters. Yeah. Yeah, it's a great choice. And I, I always wish – he's one of the guys that I wish I had seen. Yeah. He's one of – like it makes me sad that I never got to see that guy play because everybody will tell you that same thing about him. Um, I'm going in a completely different direction for my number four pick, which is I'm taking Ichiro. Okay. Now here's here's the thing about Ichiro. Ichiro does one exactly one thing. It's ground ball singles. <laughs> That's all he does. In his major league career, he has twenty seven hundred and eighty one hits. Like twenty three hundred of them are singles, and probably twenty one hundred of those are ground ball singles. And that's what he. And the reason to me he's such a pure hitter, a meaningless phrase, is that he has a new he has a new way of hitting. And the way he hits is he plays tennis. He is he's not he's not playing with a baseball bat. He's playing with a tennis racket. And when he, the ball comes in, if it's in close to him, he kind of he he shortens his arms and he kind of pulls the ball through like the two hole between first and second. If it's outside and low, he hits literally hits a backhand slice. I feel he like dips down, and hits a one handed backhand slice, and you can see the ball take the same path to left center that a left that is backhand slice would take in tennis if you try to hit it down the line. 
he and that's all he does. And the craziest thing about Ichiro, first of all, he showed up from the Japanese league and his first year in Major League Baseball against the best competition in the world, he had 242 hits, which is insane. <laughs> it's so crazy. That's a really, really crazy statistic. But my favorite stat of his, of, of all of them, is that in uh, 2009, he had 678 plate appearances. Uh, he only walked 32 times. So basically, he never walked. This guy never walked. He had 225 hits. So many of those were, imagine in your head what Ichiro's hits look like, and now realize that he hit into one double play the entire season. He grounded into one double play. This is a guy who is hitting the ball on the ground or roughly in the air on a line drive through the middle, up the middle, to the left side, to the right side, 600 and whatever, 50 times in the year. One, he grounded into one double play. <laughs> watching him now play for the Yankees, at age 40, he's a part-timer. He's, play, he's had 134 plate appearances this year. He's hitting 320. He cannot be stopped. It doesn't matter. Every ball he hits, he hits balls that go 30 feet and they're singles. He hits balls that go 100 feet and they're singles. He bloops balls. He drives balls. He does everything. He plays tennis and he gets 200 hits a year every single year and it drives me up the wall <laughs> but to me that's like if pure hitter means anything it means whatever Ichiro is which is just a guy who's figured it out who's like has such bad control and is play just playing a different kind of sport than the average hitter you know it's funny you should say the tennis thing because I, I had not really thought about that he's kind of serving volleying every because he's halfway up the line when he actually hits the ball that's I mean, exactly right. He's hitting approach. He's hitting approaches. He's slicing the ball backhanded, and then and while he's running toward the net, and that's why you can't get him out. By the time the ball hits the ground eight feet in front of the plate or whatever, he's he's a third of the way to first. You can't get him out even at age forty. It's it's really amazing. It's yeah. an amazing approach to hitting. Do you find it amazing? By the way, I mean, I I, I thought about him because he is so different, and he came from. Japan and he and he was that first year he was such a phenomenon because he was playing at this high level but also because you never see that I mean it was like it really was like the Fosbury flop where suddenly somebody said why are we high jumping forward why don't we just high jump backward and everybody just went oh and and that was what Ishiro was it was sort of like hey here's a way you can hit you can be running while you're hitting (laughs) yeah yeah (laughs) it's yeah, it's like um, it's like uh, uh, Adam Sandler playing golf in in Abby Gilmore. It's like, yeah, if you could do it that way, that would be great. You could run up to the ball and hit it as hard as you could and make it go straight. Everyone would do that, and that's literally what he did. He just started running. He was already at top speed after one step. But, but do you find it surprising that that more that doesn't happen more often? I mean, maybe maybe we're just. That's who we are as as a as as a people. I guess we follow others and copy others. And one guy comes up with a slight innovation, and everybody, you know, the, the, as soon as Bill Walsh is playing the 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 you know the West Coast offense, everybody's playing it. I get it, but it feels to me like that should happen every every few years. Somebody should come along and say, "I'm going to do this in a way that's completely different from everybody else." Yeah, and but it doesn't. I mean, Ishiro was sort of like if you went through guys who have actually hit differently than everybody else over the last 40 years. It's like Ishiro. It's like, I don't, nobody else really came up with this whole new way to hit a baseball. Yeah. Yeah. It really, I mean, I think it just, it takes a singular level of hand-eye coordination. Yeah. Even, even for the elite players who are playing the game, I just think it's just, 
I think people would do it if they could. I think D. Gordon would do it if he could. You know, yeah. I like I think you know uh, Billy Hamilton would do it if he could. Sure. I, I just think it, there's something about that guy's uh, you know a, a hand-eye coordination and vision and kind of balance and and athleticism and, and that it just allowed him to do it. And he's and he you know he's got you know professionally has four thousand hits or whatever. So. Um, I, yeah, it's a it's a disruptive technology, is what scientists refer to it as. It's a it's a thing that completely changes an entire like. Um, uh, I guess he probably isn't a disruptive technology because it's not like he's not using a bat or something. <laughs> he's still using a bat. It's just like he just found a way to improve on the ability to to get on base uh, by hitting a baseball. What did you make of all the people saying that he used to hit home run after home run in batting practice and? And his teammates always used to say, if he wanted to, he could hit 30 home runs in a year. You know, you hear that a lot. You hear that about, you used to hear that about Boggs. You would hear that about Gwynn. You would hear that about a lot of guys. But, like, I, I think anybody, it's sort of like dunking in the NBA. Like, anybody can dunk in warm-ups. You know what I mean? Like, these right. guys all dunk, but it's not part of their game. Like, that's not what their, uh, what their game is when they're actually in game flow. So, like, I don't, I don't, I don't think that, like, I think anybody who could easily hit 40 home runs would hit 40 home runs. Yeah. I think it's like that, but it would, it would take you out of your, you know, your approach to hitting. It's a lot easier to do it in batting practice than it is in an actual game against live competition. Yeah, I don't buy it. I don't buy it. I, I, don't, I, I, I never did buy it. Okay, well, that's a great choice. He was on my list as well. Uh, lots of people still on my list because my list is like 30 people on it. Yeah. Um, but I'm going to go with my number five. Really, it's almost a – it's a – I feel like I have to because I don't know if I mentioned this to you. The Royals are in first place. Yeah. So I'm going to take George Brett as my fifth pick uh, as an, as a, you know, to honor the Royals being in first place and also to honor George, who I, who I've gotten to know uh, quite well over the years. And, and uh, George was uh, a fantastic hitter. I mean, obviously it's, it's, you know, he, he really was a guy. I mean, Tony Gwynn never got the chance. He really was the guy who could have hit 400. I, I don't know that people fully appreciate how close he came in 1980. It was such a big deal at the time, and it was it was so. I mean, he was being surrounded by by media day after day after day after day. But he was hitting 400 in September. I mean, it was it was pretty. It was legit. And then he went like kind of in a little two week like slump where he only hit like 310 or something, and then and then. He had a really great final few days to push it back up to 390, which is amazing, by the way. You shouldn't have to hit 400 to to celebrate the fact the guy hit 390. Yeah. But he was hurt a lot of that year. There was, again, lots of things going against him, but he was just an amazing hitter. He started out, of course, it's fairly well known, it's certainly in Kansas City. He started out, he, he was hitting... 220 and 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 was completely getting down on himself and and you know he he grew up with a very demanding father and that was a big part of his of his life was that his father he called up his father and say hey I got two hits today and his dad would scream at him because he didn't get three hits and it was a very um, powerful sort of great Santini like relationship that he had with his father. So he was hitting 220 and he was getting way down on himself and it was it was completely um it looked like it was going to it just wasn't going to happen. I mean it was it was already at that point where where there was some concern that he was never going to get um to that level and he went to go see um 
the hitting coach, who completely said, well, you know what, if you're going to, if you're going to hit, you just need to change the way you do it. And he sort of, not Ishiro-like, but kind of invented this new way of hitting um, that would actually become somewhat popular where you would let go of the bat with your right hand, which was very controversial. Something about weight shifting and, and various other things. So he, he starts doing this and he just starts hitting. And he hit basically for the next 20 years. He won three batting titles in three different decades, although that's kind of a faux statistic. I don't really buy it since he won one in the 70s, then he won one in 1980, and then he won one in 1990. So that doesn't – I'm not sure I'm buying the three decades thing. But <laughs> but still, amazing, amazing hitter and uh, pure hitter. I'll, I'll, I, I'm going to give George Brett the the my fifth designation of pure hitter. I love it. It's a great choice. I love, there's a stat that sometimes you hear that I love, which is more extra base hits than strikeouts. Yeah. And which is a really, it's like a, it's a very crude measurement. Obviously it doesn't really tell any kind of complete story, but count how many years George Brett had more extra base hits than strikeouts. I mean, he had more doubles than strikeouts, I think in five years, which is pretty amazing. More doubles than strikeouts in five different years is a pretty amazing stat and came close in a bunch of other years. You know, he had years where in 76, he had 34 doubles and 36 strikeouts. And then you add in, obviously, the triples and home runs. It's it's basically every year. It's almost every year the guy had more extra base hits than strikeouts, which is a great, just a great, like, crude way to say what a hitter, you know. He never struck out. I mean, that yeah. was the thing. He never struck out. In 1980, he struck out 22 times, I think. And and uh, when you're, you know, when you're not striking out, you have a chance. That's that's the other thing about Ted Williams. We talked about 400. You need to walk. That's That's very big. You can't strike out. I mean, you have to put the ball in play in order to have any kind of shot, I think, at, at hitting 400 because, obviously, a strikeout is an out. And every ground ball you hit, every relatively every fly ball, not really the, the pop-ups, but, but fly balls with some sort of angle on them are at least a chance for a hit. You have to give yourself as many chances as as possible. And yeah. uh, I don't, by the way, not to, not to, to, to take this away from, from anything, but nobody's ever going to hit 400 again, are they? No, I don't think so. No. I mean, I, you know, in the era of sort of specialized pitchers and seeing three different guys in a game on average and, and defensive shifts, I think that's going to play a big role. Yeah, better, better scouting, better positioning. I, it's going to be real hard. It's going to take a, a very, very special situation, um, for a guy to hit 400. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't, I wouldn't certainly wouldn't bet on it. If you had, if you had to bet, you would bet. No, right. I think so. I think so. Um, all right. Well, for my last pick, I'm going a little. I'm taking a wild card here. I the other the other guys. I mean, you can probably guess who we had, who we didn't choose. Right? It's Manny Ramirez and Ken Griffey Jr. and Willie Mays, and I even put a Rod on my list because of how good he was. You know, before again, before all this nonsense happened. Sure. I'm, I'm going to take a wild card here uh, because again, the the title of the draft is a meaningless uh, term. <laughs> nothing. I'm taking Paul Molitor. Wow. Yeah. Now, here's my thing about Paul Molitor. Paul Molitor played in Milwaukee, Toronto, and Minnesota. <laughs> no one cared about Paul Molitor. <laughs> Just no one cared. He was kind of a boring player, and I say that lovingly. He he was not flashy. He wasn't, you know, he didn't hit a ton of home runs. He played in three kind of, you know, second city, uh, second level cities. But he was amazing. He's top 10 all time in hits. He's 10th. In hits, he had 3,319 hits. He had 225 hits when he was 39 years old. <laughs> and when I was sort of poking around, it, there's some pretty amazing things about him. You 
No, 81 was a strike-shortened season, so he only played in, there were only 64 games. He missed most of his 27-year-old season with, I assume, injuries in 84. He only played in 13 games. When he was in 29, he only played in 105 games. When he was 30, he only played in 118 games. When he was 33, he only played in 103 games. He missed a ton of games from his age, you know, 24 to 33 years. A ton of games. And he still had 3,319 hits. It's a pretty amazing thing to realize. You know, it's a little, it's not as extreme as Ted Williams missing five years for military service, but missing, you know, big chunks of whole seasons in his prime and still managing to be 10th all time in hits is a pretty amazing statistic. And I did not know that about him. I didn't know that he had missed that time uh, for some reason. Um, but he also was a guy who just got better as he got older and not in the Barry Bonds suspicious way, just in like a, just in like a pure hitting way. Yeah. He had 216 hits when he was 34. He had 211 when he was 36. He had 225 when he was 39. He was just a machine who just cranked out like opposite field singles and doubles. You know, he hit 35 to 40 home runs or doubles every year from when he was 30 all the way to the end. So, uh, yeah, just in, in, a, in a little bit of a, like, tip of the hat, you were underrated your whole life. Here's to you, Paul Molitor. I'm taking Paul Molitor at number five. It's a, it's a, it's a very good choice because of the reason you took him. Um, it's so funny that Paul Molitor, I'd say it probably until he was, I don't know, 28, 29, 30, even 30 years old, I used to think of Paul Molitor as Jim Gantner. I used to think those two guys were the same guy. Yeah. Jim Gantner used to be this old, this Milwaukee second baseman who was – it was good. It was fine. I didn't think of Paul Molitor in a negative way. I thought he was fine. He was a perfectly fine player. And then he had like that great, great 87 season where he hit 350 or something. Yeah. And then he started getting, like, started coming up the charts on various different things, like like hits and, and, and all of that. And in his mid-30s, he led the league in triples, which is insane. It's yeah. insane. He led the league in triples. In his, and then And then... All of a sudden, I'd say, you know, I'm, I'm looking him up now. Yeah, right there, 34 years old. He basically said, you know what? From now on, I'm a 325 hitter. That's it. That's who I am. And he hit 325 like for the rest of his career. Like, yeah. Basically, and and how does that happen? How does that happen that at age 35 you suddenly become this this totally different great player? And and you know, obviously that has, as you you know, sort of mentioned with Bonds. That has taken on this this negative connotation of guys who age too well, but it used to be, and I it, I wish it would be again. This thing that you would just be awed by that guys yeah. like like Hank Aaron and guys like like Paul Molitor, you know, Edgar Martinez is another guy. He was on my list of guys who like just never stop hitting. They just find yeah. ways to just keep on hitting after they're too slow to hit. You know, that it's not like those guys had superhuman reflexes that didn't slow. I think their reflexes slow like everybody else's did. They just found other ways to to make up for it. They were smarter. They looked for they hit curveballs better. They did all kinds of other things. And so yeah, pure hitter, absolutely, Paul Molitor. And, and you know what really the answer, I think, to your question of how does that happen, it's the DH. You know, he became yeah. basically a full time DH. He stopped playing in the field you know, most of his games, you know, from, I don't know, 90, 89 on or something, or probably 90 on, 
where he played DH. You know, he would play a little first and, you know, sub him in or whatever. But most of the time he was just like, all right, I'm just a pure hitter. And that's why, you know, that's probably what did it for him. That was probably the difference between him ending up with 2,700 hits and, and 3,300 hits is that he only had one thing to focus on. And, he, you know, he saved a little wear and tear. He's playing artificial turf, you know, from 93 on. And I don't think he probably gets to that level if he's not a DH, a full-time DH. No, I think that's right. I think that's right. But there are guys that can handle the DH and guys who can't. I mean, there are guys who, who uh, when they start playing DH, they lose focus. They, they find themselves bored on the bench, and, and they're not in the game as much. And there are other guys, obviously, like Molitor and Ortiz and, and, and uh, Edgar Martinez and guys who, who really thrive you know, with that designated hitter role. I, I think the designated hitter in general is underrated because let's face it, for every player we're talking about, their their value in the field, you know, obviously shortstops, second baseman are different, but if you're talking about a first baseman, you're talking generally about a left fielder, even a right fielder, 80, 85, maybe even 90% of their value comes from hitting. And, yep. and so even if you take 10% off, of Edgar Martinez or off of Paul Molitor or off of David Ortiz for that matter, they're still Hall of Fame players. I mean, that's how, you know, that's how good they are. So I think the DH in some ways is is underrated. I really kind of hoped that Molitor getting into the Hall of Fame would sort of open up the door a little bit for DHs. But for some reason, people, because he did play his first half of his career in the field, people didn't didn't fully accept what you're exactly what you're saying which is yeah. he wouldn't be in the hall of fame if he wasn't a dh yeah people just don't think of paul molitor as a dh like right. they remember him playing in the field and and it you know it, he's not it's not quite enough to break that weird glass ceiling <laughs> dh's face uh but you know someday it'll happen i don't know who it'll, whether it be ortiz or or you know edgar martinez or somebody it'll, it'll eventually it'll happen it'll be like punters in the hall of fame the football <laughs> hall of fame you know it'll happen it'll, it'll happen, happen. All right, so so the few that I did not choose, uh, Rod Carew, who, amazing, changed his batting uh, stance basically for every at-bat. Miguel Cabrera, I I think the best pure hitter in the game today. And and, uh, uh, although, funny, because if you said best hitter in the game today, everybody would say Cabrera. But if you said best pure hitter, there'd be like Joe Maurer fans would like say, no, wait, Joe Maurer is better pure hitter. (laughs) <laughs> no reason yeah. for that. No reason for that at all. Because pure hitter is a meaningless term. That's why it's a meaningless term. And uh, and Albert Pujols, who who man, we had just forgotten about him. Just I don't I don't mean us specifically. I mean America. That's it. It's like two years of mediocrity, which which he has been. He's become this sort of low average slugger for some reason. Uh, has made us forget for eleven years he was like the best ever. I mean, or one of them. I mean, that's he was he was on a level. He was on a level that put him with all of the greatest players in baseball history. And I think now it's just going to be a very, very sad last few years of his career. And, and uh, that makes me sad. That really does make me sad. Yeah. I, it, it's, uh, I, I saw you tweeted about Pujols the other day, or someone did. I, maybe it was you, but this is just who he is now. Yeah, that was me. Yeah, it's not, yeah, it's not like a, it's not about can he come back or can he re- achieve this or that or whatever. It's like – there's a new there's a new kind of standard 50th percentile, you know, projection for him, and this is sort of what it is, and this is going to be it for the next eight years yeah, until his yeah. contract is up. It's really it is it is a bummer. You hate to see guys like fall off a shelf like that, even if that shelf was incredibly high. 
Um, but yeah, I, I think you're. I think you were right when you said that. It's like this is he just isn't the guy he was, and he's never going to be it again. Not not that guy. He'll never be that guy. He'll have his years. He'll hit thirty yeah. home runs, and he'll probably have a year where the batting average comes back. You know what it's like? It's you look at Frank Thomas's the last few years of Frank Thomas's career. It's kind of like that. Wherever yeah. Frank Thomas popped up and had that near MVP season. I mean, he didn't deserve it, but he he got MVP votes late in his career. But then in between there, he was he was really scuffling and. That's what Albert Pujols is going to get. Uh, unfortunately, the Angels paid a jillion dollars for that. Yeah, yeah. It's really it's amazing that it happened so it happened so quickly, and it, it was only really noticeable because of the incredible precedent that he had set. Right? Yes, it was like yes. he was he was doing amazing things every single year. So the first year he wasn't amazing. It was everyone noticed. You know, it's like he didn't he didn't have the benefit of kind of sliding slowly into a you know a lower level like most players do, because we were all paying such close attention to the ridiculous things he was doing. Yeah, for his first bad season. Well, I mean, it wasn't bad. It ended up being okay. But his first okay season was the first year of the contract. I mean, it, yeah. it was absolutely right on. So. Yeah, his first bad month was that first month of that <laughs> year. That's why everyone was like, uh oh, you know. Anyway. That's exactly right. All right. Well, there you go. See, and I don't know how to end this now. That's it. We've we're through the draft, but I don't even know how to end it. <laughs> Why don't you try a new sign off? What, what do you What do you think? think? What, what would be a good sign off? Try try you know uh, try good night and good luck. That one used to work well for people. <laughs> yeah, that seems like several people have tried to use that one before. I'm going to wait for people to send me a sign off. But as always, thank you so much for joining me. You know what? Thanks for having me. <laughs> <laughs> you are very welcome, and uh, we'll do this again. All right.